Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. Sorry for the extended radio silence. Farming and steady podcasting don't always mix well. But with Frost just a week or two away here and the evenings getting longer with the shortening days, I'm finally able to return to this show that I love so much. I have so many great plans for season three of No-Till Flowers and will be spending the winter hunkering down with my microphone. But before I launch a whole new season, I need to actually wrap up season two and get some of the amazing interviews I had recorded months ago, finally edited and out to you all. Today's conversation is a total gem. I can't believe I've actually been sitting on it since late February. My gracious and knowledgeable guest is Matt Arthur of Boone's Lick Heritage Farm in central Missouri. I seriously could have talked to Matt all day, and I really hope to have him back on the podcast again in the future because he's an absolute treasure trove. In this episode, we talk about both large-scale bokashi and large-scale worm bins. So much good stuff here. For those who don't know, bokashi is an anaerobic process that harnesses wild yeast and introduced bacteria to quickly ferment food waste that can then be more efficiently composted in trenches in the soil. Unlike the more widely used aerobic composting process many of us use at our farms, bokashi does not need any added carbon source. This is great news for anyone who has had a hard time sourcing enough quote-unquote browns, be it wood chips, straw, leaves, or whatnot, to run a hot and healthy aerobic pile. Bokashi can also be made on a large scale without a tractor or other large equipment, which means it could very well be the solution to producing high-quality compost in volume on a small farm. Matt talks about the on-farm soil testing he's done that really illustrates the value of Bokashi as a regenerative input, particularly its ability to quickly increase organic matter in tired soils. Matt has scaled his Bokashi operation up to be able to collect food waste from 105 households in his community, and this paid service has provided another good income stream for his farm, especially in the winter. And the Bokashi is a good quality feedstock for his large-scale worm operation. Of course, I asked Matt a million questions about that large-scale worm operation, and he did not disappoint. Nothing is quite so gratifying as talking to a kindred spirit about a shared nerdy passion, is it? You can follow Matt on Instagram at blh underscore farm. Matt mentions modifying a 96-gallon quote-unquote roller or trash can to use for bokashi. This summer I made one so we could start trialing bokashi at my farm. I've included a link in the show notes to a site where you can watch a video and buy supplies for converting a trash can. Matt also mentions EM1, a blend of microbes that he recommends using for bokashi. 
I've included a link to that product in the show notes as well. At my farm, we've been using LAB, which we can make ourselves in our Bokashi bin while we've been in the experimental phase, but I plan to convert to EM1 once we get cranking. If you're interested in seeing my first attempt at a Bokashi bin, <laughs> and also a small-scale, easy-to-use worm bin in person, come to the Autumn No-Till Flowers Field Day at my farm here in Philadelphia on October 28th. This will be the sixth field day I've hosted, and each one has been an absolute blast. There will be a link in the show notes for registration for that. If you can't make the trip to Philadelphia, but still want to get nerdy about Bokashi and worms, consider joining the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network. Find it at regenerativeflowerfarmersnetwork.org. A vibrant community hub for the ever-curious flower farmer, this network helps make connections, start conversations, and serves as a repository for articles and studies on regenerative practices. Membership in the network also goes to support the making of more podcast episodes here on No-Till Flowers. Alrighty, let's get started. Here's Matt Arthur. All right, today I have Matt Arthur from Boonslick Heritage Farm in central Missouri with me to talk all about Bokashi and on-farm worm composting at a like slightly larger scale than I've been able to do so far, and just generally what it's like to farm in Missouri and take up flower farming and all the other cool things that you guys are doing out there. So welcome, Matt. I'm excited to talk to you today. Hey, Jenny. I'm really happy to talk to you. Yay. Cool. So let's start with why is your farm name Boonslick Heritage Farm or BLH Farm? <laughs> well, we're farming on land that I grew up on uh, just outside Columbia, Missouri. And when I was a kid, you could still see the wagon ruts from the Daniel Boone Trail headed from Boonville, Columbia area down to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so when we started our farm, we thought, well, what is it that can we really think about? It? We think about my childhood there and about our daughter's time on the farm. Mm -hmm. And we wanted something that would reference you know, this passage of generations and also um, our role as stewards of the land. Right? We're only here for a while. We want it to be as productive and healthy as we can. Yeah, definitely. And how long have you, you've been managing the farmland there then? How long has it been under your stewardship? So we took about two acres for our flower farm. The rest of it is still in row crops. Okay. Um, we took a, a, a hay field. It had been a cattle pasture up until the early eighties. Then it was a hay field. And we took, we took that land um, near a retention pond for our flower farm. And um why flowers? <laughs> I feel like I always have to ask people why flowers. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, okay, it's two, it's twofold, right? First, we both really like flowers. We were much younger, and we, right before we got married, we saw some cut flower farms in Vermont mm -hmm. that really stunned us. We thought that would be just such a fun thing to grow. They're beautiful, endless variety. Um, there's a real local aspect to them. Like mm -hmm. you really can't grow everything everywhere. You can't ship them across the country. It's something that gives you a little bit of a leg in the market to be able to grow something. It's hard to transport. Uh, we like that. Yeah. And we also felt like as we were getting into farming on the you know small scale rather than the row crop scale, that there were way too many people starting vegetable farms. Indeed. And we thought this this <laughs> looks really rough. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not particularly excited about every vegetable that you have to grow to be competitive either. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We we grow a lot of stuff for ourselves, but I don't grow the full suite of things that customers would expect probably at a diversified mm -hmm. vegetable farm. Whereas 
we can grow all, all the flowers we like and nothing else. It seems great. Hmm. Are there many flower farmers around you at this point? I'm sure there weren't many when you started, but are they starting to pop up now? Yeah, you know, there, there. I mean, there are, I don't think there are in terms of the population of Missouri, because we have St. Louis and Kansas City hmm. that we could sell to. We're right between both. Oh, wow. Um, there are some very good growers in Missouri now, a mixture of, of dedicated flower farms uh, who have a niche of some kind and then vegetable farms that have added either part of a tunnel or a complete tunnel for cut flowers in the high season. Gotcha. So where are you selling your flowers mostly? I know you guys have a subscription service. Is that the primary sales outlet or how do you get your customers and, and get your flowers out there? Yeah, last, until last year was the biggest outlet. Um, this year we're cutting that down a bit and we're going to be focusing more on the farmer's market. The Chloe hmm. farmer's market is a pretty big draw here in town. Oh, wow. And then the rest we sell to grocery stores. Oh, I feel like I don't hear many people saying that they're they're um, going to go focus on farmer's markets anymore. I feel like once COVID hit, then everybody was all of a sudden into subscriptions and so forth. And um, I'm, I'm excited to hear that the farmer's market is vital for you guys. Yeah, that pendulum is swinging back for us. Last year, we, we did, I mean, vast majority of our sales were online and to mm -hmm. CSA, and mm -hmm. it was great, right? But mm -hmm. We would like to be present more in town. We'd like to be like meeting customers, getting mm -hmm. more feedback direct. Um, we found it challenging to get our CSA customers to tell us what they liked or didn't like about these bouquets. We, we liked them all, but we <laughs> could never really see how they landed with the customer. Yeah, um, yeah. But because we were doing a porch side drop off, we weren't doing a pickup. Okay. So we really wouldn't see them. At the market, you can really see people, you know, look, they, the eye catches and they come right over or they say, yeah. oh, I have to have this. It's so yeah. beautiful. And you say, yeah. okay, that that's what we want to hear. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's like in-person free um, uh, market research, so to speak, when you're actually at a farmer's market and you can see your customer's reaction to something, you can you can start really dialing it in. I, I think that's a great approach to it so you can get um, better and better at what you do. So cool. Um all right. So, but you have this flower side of the business and you're growing, how, mu how much acreage are you on at this point? Um, we are a little less than an acre, including some perennial space. So okay. we have, um, you know, a medium sized tunnel, a smaller tunnel, and then about a half acre of annuals in the field and the rest are perennials. Okay. And then you're going to try to scale up to that two acres then entirely yeah. mm -hmm. or okay. Over time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm putting in more perennials when we more can. More perennials. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to get everybody to plant more perennials. It's just so good for the ecosystem. And it's also just good for you as a farmer. You know, it's going to, it's it's the way you're going to be able to retire and, <laughs> and stop working so hard. So always add those perennials. I'm curious because I come from a, a farming family uh, myself and grew up on a very conventional sort of traditional farm and in, an, in a community that now would understand the idea of a flower farm. But when I grew up, they definitely wouldn't have, you know, bought into that. <laughs> it's just sort of like everybody just grow your own flowers in your garden. I'm curious, what does your family think of you flower farming right next to all the row crops? Is it, um, is there a disconnect sometimes or do they seem to really comprehend and buy into it? That's a great question. I, um, I think my dad at first, Wanted to know why we didn't grow vegetables. Right, right? exactly. Thought, no. That's what my dad wanted to know. He's like, wait, so yeah. you're not doing dairy cows. All right, so are you doing like potatoes or something? I'm like, no, no, not potatoes. No. <laughs> right, right. But but um, maybe the end of the first season, they, they said, oh, yeah, we get it. Like, mm. And they, you know, this part of Missouri, the conventional row croppers are really 
almost all no-till now obviously oh, chemical chemical dependent right yeah. it's, it's, yeah. but but cover crops and no-till agriculture are probably the majority practice now it's rare to see you know bare earth in the winter mm-hmm. um, okay good and so like these practices we we started as a no-till flower farm you know love what you're doing jesse's doing and follow kind of the larger vegetable trend towards no-till mm-hmm. and this really resonated with our farmers in the neighborhood um hmm. and they have been really good about coordinating spraying with us, making sure that they don't just check the wind for speed, but they're looking at direction. Mm-hmm. We're not close particularly to the nearest uh, row crop, but we're within say a quarter mile. So mm-hmm. it could carry. is a concern. Yeah. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great that they, they, you didn't, doesn't sound like you had to twist anybody's arm to convince them that this is something really interesting to have happen. So yeah, I think mostly they said, oh, you can make money at that. Good, do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sometimes I feel a little bit, this is like a sort of a personal aside here, but, you know, uh, my family owns a 350-acre farm in a much more rural part of Pennsylvania um, and have been farming for five generations. And then I come to the city of Philadelphia and I start a little tiny flower farm <laughs> that originally was like an eighth of an acre. And now, you know, we're up to about four acres of actual production. And, you know, my family's really, you know, uh, transparent and talk a lot about what we're doing. And I'm trying to help save my family farm, too. So I'm I'm involved in the finances of that farm. And I make more money on <laughs> my little tiny farm <laughs> than they do on the big one. And it's just sometimes I feel a little, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say sheepish about it. But, you know, like it feels weird to be like, yes, I'm, I'm a farmer. It's tiny. It's small. Um, but I am farming uh, by the book, so to speak, by the definition of it. And uh, it's interesting how that contrasts sometimes. So, um, yeah. yeah, it is. It is. And, and seeing the kind of just relentless grind of large scale commodity mm-hmm. agriculture, mm-hmm. you get a good year every once in a while, right. but mostly absolute grind. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will say there is nothing like sitting in the combine at harvest time though on a big farm. <laughs> like it is truly something. It's incredible <laughs> to watch that come into the bucket. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I I, I, I do miss that. I used to ride with my dad when he was out um, in the fields and it was always fun to just good memories there basically so <laughs> all right so but flowers are basically uh, correct me if i'm wrong they're kind of like one half of your business at this point you've got this whole other thing called bokashi composting so that's what i really wanted to pick your brain about because i love that you're incorporating this more ancient form of uh composting that is lesser known. I feel like we flower farmers or sustainable farmers or generative farmers, whatever you want to call us, are very well versed in compost. <laughs> but I don't like feel like there's, compost. yeah, yeah, like regular, you know, make a big pile, turn it every once in a while. But then there's this thing called Bokashi. So, Matt, please educate us. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, the big difference we think of compost, we think aerobic compost. A big pile, mixture of carbon and nitrogen, greens and browns, that gets very hot, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You add water, you turn it. At the end of some period, you have, you know, black organic material that you can add to your beds on top. It's great, right? We all think of that being compost. Bokashi is anaerobic, right? There's very little carbon, no carbon added. So oh. only the carbon present in the materials. It does not get hot because it's technically a homolactic fermentation. Mm. There's no cycling of carbon that releases energy to, to make it hot. And it uses a totally different set of microbes. Um, 
mainly lactobacillus and some yeast. You do this in a closed container that's airtight, if possible, or large scale under a very tight fitting, you know, uh, non-porous tarp. And then at the end of that, you have fermented waste, be it fermented food waste, agricultural waste. And most often you would bury that into the soil uh, four to six inches below the top of the soil, kind of directly feed that into the root zone and let the existing soil microbes colonize it, feed off it, digest it in place. It's a, it's a totally different process. So, and for the record, I know only as much about Bokashi as Tony at Bear Mountain Farms on YouTube has put up there. So I am totally a novice at this. I have several questions. So what's the difference between Bokashi and kimchi? Because kimchi is basically just fermented food. So this is also fermented food. I guess we're just not eating it. And that's the point. Or is there some other different biology happening? No, or maybe you don't even pretty, know. It's pretty similar, actually. Yeah. Um, the kimchi is fermented. It's very much like bakashi, whereas pickles or a pickled food is is not fermented, right? In a fermented food, there is some microbial action changing that food substrate, right, in some way. Mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a true pickling, a salt pickling, there's no change to the food. It's just being preserved. Right. So it's very similar to kimchi. Okay. Um, okay. So I, we, we try to think of bakashi as like a pre pre compost. I mean, fully okay. composted bakashi looks very much like the thing that you bakashi. Okay. <laughs> so it doesn't break down um, to become like, you know, black gold. It is still essentially the same food product, but different at the same time. Right. So what happens? So you, you would, I'll just go ahead and talk about how yeah, yeah. we do bakashi. So at any scale, you want food waste, you want an airtight container, you want some way to drain liquid out of that container without disturbing the food and adding air, and you want a carrier for the microbes that actually do the work. Um, okay. We use organic wheat bran from a mill in Illinois that we inoculate with microbes from Terraganics. We use their EM1, which is the okay. uh, essential microbes, mm -hmm. you know, standard mix that came from uh, Dr. Higa in Japan. So we ferment first, inoculate wheat bran in a in a food safe barrel with uh, molasses, water and EM1. And once the microbes have colonized that bran, we can use that as a carrier into our food waste in larger containers. Um, so you kind of layer the food waste with the bran, close it up tight. Every so often we have a spigot we put in and we drain the liquid out. <clears throat> we can save that liquid, particularly later in the process, dilute it, use it as you would uh, kind of a, a KNF lacto spray or lacto drench. Okay. And then at the end of that, you've removed a good amount of liquid because the first thing that happens is the the microbes do a great job of dropping the acidity, the pH. Yeah. The pH drops, so okay. acidity rises. <laughs> and and the much of the liquid in the food drains out. Okay. Um that leachate is a mixture of just, you know, water from the cells of the food waste and also microbes from the right. from the brand M1. And at the end of that, you have a, a compressed, much drier, hmm. fermented, and often white molded, uh, particularly if there's a little bit of air, white molded material. Okay. We think of this as being pre-digested. Okay. You can, at that point, we either make hot compost from it, and we see piles that heat up just so fast, hmm. right? Because it's already been kind of more than colonized has been pre-consumed by yeah it's kind of like partially digested it sounds like yeah. like a, the probably if there's like cell walls broken down at that point and stuff yeah exactly right okay. 
And so depending on what we want to do, if we need, we do use a lot of aerobic composts for soil mixes, for top dressing beds. And so we'll make standard pile, right? We have wood chips from a local trimmer, tree trimmer in the Bakashi, and we find it heats up really quickly. It breaks down really evenly. Um, you have much less of the, like the pocket of, you know, sweet potatoes or oranges right. or whatever that yeah. doesn't break down. Um, or if we're forming new beds, we will trench and then bury the Bakashi and then cover it up. Okay. I have so many questions. Yeah, go for it. Sorry. <laughs> Where yeah, to start? Sorry. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Wait, first of all, for listeners, if you wouldn't mind, can you define what EM1 is? Just because some people don't know and I don't like to throw yeah, acronyms yeah, yeah. around. <laughs> right. So EM1, it's a, it's a term used by Terragonics, a company in Texas, to refer to uh, essential microbes, which is the set of microbes that was developed in Japan, kind of standardized Bakashi composting. The, you know, Bakashi in its true kind of wild form would use uh, either wild lactobacillus and yeast or a local, you know, indigenous um, inoculant, kind of very much in the KNF vein here. Right. But in the, I guess it was the 80s, I think, uh, a researcher named Dr. Higa in Japan wanted to standardize and see which microbes were actually most effective at driving fermentation. And he settled on this mix of lactobacillus, yeast, and some other thing, and, and okay. some fungi. Okay. And so that that was then uh, trademarked at least, maybe patented, and mm -hmm. it's grown reliably and at scale by a company you can buy from. Okay. But you can still just use your own LAB, right? This is what I you can read you about. can you can yeah okay. you can I we don't because we are not confident that the kind of the secondary digesters will be present whenever at that point in the year, right? Okay. Reliably, you'll get lactobacillus. That's right. no problem. Okay. Here in Missouri, reliably, we will get yeast. There's wild yeast everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> no problem. Um, but we do see different results depending on when we do it. And so EM1 is pretty cheap. Okay. And you can amplify it pretty easily. Just on the brand. Buy... Just keep adding yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. And you can buy a gallon of it for you know, $75 okay. and a gallon goes a long way. We'll okay. do We'll do probably 1,500 pounds of wheat bran with a gallon of EM1. <laughs> wow. Right. And so then and you think we'll probably do 20,000 pounds of food waste with that much bran. So. Oh my gosh. This is crazy. Yeah. That's one thing I want to, I want to talk to you about the scale, how you've been scaling up, but I'm going to stick to my current train of thought here. So um, what is the... Well, I, I know this. I'm just, this is a leading question, but <laughs> I assume that we could all just go out and dig a trench and shove our scraps into the ground without this process of putting it in an airtight bucket and adding EM1 and so forth. So does this just basically, you know, the Pukashi process is just speeding up what nature would do anyway? Do you know if it's somehow um, creating some additional value for our farms in particular? I'm thinking about soil health and soil fertility do you know if there's anything extra that happens yes you know actually growing up that's how we that's what we did with our yeah, food that's waste what we, we did. would just bury them <laughs> yeah what, and yeah. checkerboard across the garden yeah and, you yeah know, it works it does work just fine uh it definitely is faster if you pre-ferment it okay okay there's no doubt yeah. um you know fermented bakashi let's say it takes two to three weeks in the container to ferment and then if you dig that patch after you bury it 
three weeks later, it's almost all gone. Really? That fast? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, really fast. Okay, then and that's way is, faster you know, than growing yeah. up when we just threw it out into the ground. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I There's also, I mean, there's mixed research on this. It's not, this is not an area that's really well understood, but it seems that the inoculant does carry additional microbes into the soil. So you will see more lactobacillus. Okay. You will see more fungi. Okay. Um, so I think it probably is advantageous for soil health, mm-hmm. but I can't quantify it. No, that's okay. I mean, so much of what we have to do as regenerative farmers is have leaps of faith. So, and and I think just what you observe, um, any farmer observes should be quantitative science for ourselves. I realize it's not the same as like university science, but sometimes we just have to say what we what we see and what we notice. And in this case, the fact that that transformation happens so quickly in the soil does. I, I think it sounds like you're inoculating your soil as much as anything there. You're just revving up the soil community whenever you put that bokashi in, which makes sense because instead of you know, if you if we just bury old school a la my childhood and your childhood, you know, take the bucket of scraps out to the garden and, and you know, heal it into the ground somewhere, you know, that requires microbes coming to it. And slowly, you know, we all know how fast microbes move. Basically, they don't. So they, they have to march over here and, and set up shop and all of that versus in the bucket with Bokashi, you're you're bringing all that life to it right away and then putting it out into the soil with all that life with it. So that that actually makes a lot of sense to me. We, we think that there's a real amplifying effect too. having it pre-digested and accessible to soil microbes means that even if you have a terrible local population of microbes, mm. you have, you know, unhealthy soil mismanaged even if there's just a just a fraction of the population you would like to see they have food mm-hmm. that they can munch on immediately mm-hmm. and their lifespans are so quick that within the three weeks it takes them to fully break it down you really can change the right the percentage of microbes in the soil yeah yeah so I have I'm curious about you said you basically don't put any carbon into the bucket intentionally. It's not like with making aerobic compost where you need to, you know, mix your greens, mix your browns, blah, blah, blah. So do you know, have you done soil tests or know if there's tests out there about how the fertility in a spot where you've buried Bokashi, if there's no carbon with it, then that must mean there's a lot of nitrogen with it. Like, do you, what, what's happening there in terms of like actual nutrients? Yeah, that's, I mean, we, we actually did a fairly large farm study this Mm. past year. We, it's pretty, pretty pretty simple, but it was, it was, it was, it was really fun. We, um, we were building new beds, okay. and we typically only add bakashi when we're building new beds because we're not in the habit of digging up your our beds. beds every year. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nobody wants to do that. Double digging is no fun. <laughs> but we were we did we did expand, and so we took um, a, a new, new ground that had been pasture, and we added bakashi, and we'd measured the soil before and after. Mm. We also measured the soil with two other sets of beds. Uh, they were older. One that had had Bakashi that we actually did dig in the second year the bed existed. Okay. And one next to it that we didn't. Okay. And so we had kind of three-year-old beds and brand new beds. Both had Bakashi and no Bakashi. Okay. This um, is sounding like a great study, by the way. This is a, this is exactly the kind of stuff I would have wanted to know. So good. <laughs> yeah, and it was really interesting. So the terms of nitrogen levels no we there it, yes there there was more nitrogen in the soil in the bakashi set yes 
it was not as much as I would have expected. Hmm. Um, organic matter was about a percent and a quarter to a percent and a half higher in the Bakashi beds, wow. which was, and we, we, you know, this is just a scene set. We're farming in a former hay field. It was a hay field for 25 years. Um, the last decade or so, uh, we did not add any external inputs, but so it was very degraded in yeah. terms of fertility. Really tired, yeah. Really tired. Yeah. Um, we're on a hilltop, so it's a mixture. You know, it's, it's windblown loess on top and then heavy clay underneath. Wow. So it's it's a pretty it's a pretty challenging. Yeah, I was going to say you're not it's, working it's, with great stuff there. Are no, you? it's a gorgeous setting. It's beautiful. Right. Right? I love being on top of the hill. It's, right. I just love it. The soil is in you know could be better. Yeah. So the non-Bakashi beds, we're talking organic matter being below two percent, right, one and a half or so. Um, the post-Bakashi, we're seeing 3.5, you know, 3.2. Wow. So it's a significant change in one yeah. one growing season. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know that there is another way to make that big of a change in one growing season because even when you add, you know, traditional compost, I don't, I don't even know what to call that at this point. We're just... <laughs> Uh, if you add aerobic compost uh, to your finished compost to your beds, you're still not going to increase organic matter that quickly because usually it still takes time for that compost to get kind of like worked in by the soil biology and it doesn't really count as organic matter yet. So that's that's an amazing increase there, right there in and of itself. Yeah, that was – we – I agree. I, I don't know how else you would change the soil structure. One of the – biggest surprises for me was how quickly the texture of the soil mm. changed after a season growing in a Bakashi bed. So that what we did, we, we had, uh, six beds. We were, we we're going to add Bakashi to uh, what would be six beds. Okay. So we dug 200 foot trenches with a rented digger that were about three and a half feet wide mm. and about two and a half feet deep. Oh, wow. And That's just deep. set the dirt to one side. Okay. Added Bakashi. I think we added uh, in total to the farm about 14,000 pounds of Bakashi of fermented food waste. Holy <laughs> cow, that is so much. I don't even, wait, like, is that like tractor trailer loads? Like, can you give no, us a visual? No. What is this? I don't even know what it's, this is. That is, uh, we use 96 gallon rollers. Okay. Totes. Yeah. So each tote holds about 350 pounds. And so we would just do sets of nine at a time. That is so and much. Then, Wow. But it's really not. You have no idea. I mean, food weighs a lot, and it's in the scale of an acre, it's almost nothing. nothing it's so right. funny. You know, oh, wow. you think this is so much Bakashi. Yeah. And you dump in the trench, and you think, we need more Bakashi. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that that's good to know though because I, I'm I, well again I'm saving this for later I want to talk yeah. all about like yeah, yeah. Bokashi as a business and helping your community and stuff so I'll, I'll, right. I'll table so, that so then, we, so then we covered it back up right covered it back up um, and then planted a quick cover crop just to get some roots and keep it keep the soil down okay um, after we gave it three months which was more than we needed but we gave it through the summer mm -hmm. high of the summer and then plowed that in and formed it into beds six beds three okay. inches wide 100 feet long um and we were growing, you know, 20 feet away in beds that we had formed from the same ground without Akashi. Mm -hmm. And those are now three-year-old beds. And those beds are rough. You know, they're mm -hmm. still predominantly clay. Like, yes, they're better than they were when we formed them. We have had several years growing and cover cropping in the winter. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely improved, right? Mm -hmm. The soil's better. But at the 
end of the growing season, it's the it's soft and crumbly. It's wonderful wow. soil. Wow. It's it's just incredible, and it's it's really. And you can really tell too, like the beds that are farther from the trenches are worse than the beds that were right, on top of the trench. Okay. It's a direct correlation yeah. to being on top of that fermented food waste. Right. And there's no trace of it. It's not like we're turning up, you know, right. sweet potatoes or yeah. whatever, yeah. you know, it's all gone. It's all undifferentiated organic matter. Yeah. We did, um, before we plowed, you know, spade up a section just to see what it looked like. And you go down eight inches and there's a six inch dark chocolate colored band in the soil that and had been the, the 18 inches of the kashi yeah. had shrunk yeah. down it's you think well of course like when roots get there yeah you know, just take off just it's go really for it. neat. yeah Wow. So it sounds like Bokashi could be a really amazing tool for growers who are opening up new space that they're growing yes. in. Yes. Yeah. For new space. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do a soil report up. I'll just tell you yeah. really quickly if you'd like what oh, changed. Oh, I would love to. Yeah, right. please. Okay. So um, phosphorus was about three times as high in the Bokashi as non Bokashi. Okay. Potassium doubled. No change in magnesium. Okay. No change in calcium. No change in in salt or sodium. pH was a little bit lower, it's like 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3 lower in the kashi, which makes sense because it it's is acidic. very acidic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the CEC, so the the cation exchange capacity, which is kind of like the holding capacity of the soil, mm -hmm. went up some. Um, okay. Not nothing crazy. Not a lot. Okay. Right, and then. Um, the micronutrients, the big, the big disappointment for us was that micros didn't change at all. Really? Right? We are, we are off the charts low on boron, boron, sulfur, magnesium. Hmm. Um, and there's absolutely no change. And we, we had really expected to see those micros jump because we're putting in food. I mean, right. it, yeah, it's yeah, post-consumer yeah. food waste. Yeah. Uh, huh. So I, wonder... I don't know if that reflects the, the paucity of nutrients in kind of consumer food writ large or <laughs> yeah, well that, right? that's a whole nother conversation about how poor the quality of our food is and how there's not really any nutrients in it so that's um, yeah. yeah that's another yeah, problem so right? i don't know if that's what it means yeah. or if it means that we that again the quantity was insufficient but you know mm -hmm. we're still at almost when you thought of we're off the charts low for boron for example yeah right we're at 0.1 parts per million and we you know, yeah, like you to need be a, to be up you know, two to three. Yeah, or yeah, so. up, up a little bit higher there. Well, I mean, I will say at my farm, not not that this is any has anything to do with Bakashi, but I've struggled with low boron at my farm too. So I'm sometimes I wonder if those micronutrients are just kind of a struggle in an agricultural environment because maybe the plants are just using them up so quickly. You know, when you're cropping, um, I'm not sure myself. Okay, I don't know. What do, you, what do you do? Do you, are you spraying solubor or something? Yep. So I use solubor only I wait until I see sign. Like I'm, I'm so, <laughs> I have such a fear of overdosing solubor because I've heard yeah. such bad stories yeah. about it. Um, so I just wait until I see puckering leaves and usually it happens most often here at my farm when right about this time of the year. So here in uh, late February, early March when we're still really pretty cold and but I've got stuff growing in my in my tunnels and so we've got the daylight now and those things like the snapdragons the campanula the ranunculus they're all starting to really you know they're starting to crank they're not full on yet but they're starting to crank 
And what's happening is the soil is still so cold that the biology is still asleep, so it's not processing the way it normally would. And so that's when I usually see puckering leaves, um, which is a sign of boron, you know, like curling, twisting uh, tips. And and then I'll just go through with soluble, or like I'll do very dilute applications like one one time wait see if I see any change I'll wait three or four days then do another one and I get, can't remember off the top of my head but it's something like I don't know a teaspoon to like my five gallon backpack spray or something so it's really like a small yeah, amount yeah. um yeah that's always one place where row crops have an advantage because yeah. you can you say, oh, we're spraying. Okay, what do we need per acre? <laughs> right, Great. Exactly. <laughs> Put in a cup. It's it's no big deal. Not a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I bought Solubor, and I think the smallest amount I could get was like a five-pound bag, and I got it like four years ago or something. I, oh. I haven't – it doesn't even look like I – I mean, it's opened, but it doesn't look like I opened it's, it really. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. The, struggle, the struggle is real. I'm so afraid, too, of overdosing. Yeah. That. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, it does. It does help, though. I will say I just go super slow. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I just I'm going to add like a tablespoon this time. And then I'm like, no, no, no. Wait, wait, no. wait. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. Right. Yeah. So but that's yeah, I have been and I have iron, too, that I've been using sometimes. So like, you know, at my farm, I really want to manage the nutrients all um in the farm system, you know, like I, I don't like buying in products and having to spray stuff that that tells me that there's some imbalance in the soil. But then sometimes you just you just have to, especially with our flowering crops, certain things, particularly the boron, will have a huge detrimental impact to um, quality of, of your blooms. So, yeah, so I have iron and I have boron handy to just spray when I notice the deficiencies. But it's always... Um, I wait until I see a deficiency. I'm not out there just liberally, you know, <laughs> going to town <laughs> with the sprayer. But yeah, we're, we're right there with you in, in mindset. We'd love to not do this. Um, yeah. When we form new beds, we do put azomite on. We okay. Put the granular azomite, but again, it's not enough boron to make a difference given the the shortage we have. So. Right. podcast you do about jdm and jlf and pnf in general so keep it up i I find them really valuable (laughs) i find them just so fascinating and i it's kind of like this bokashi thing where all of this is such like kind of ancient practice and knowledge that existed for so long and then because of industrialization we all moved to a much more petroleum-based form of agriculture um and i just I, i i love unpacking um, what used to be kind of just uh, know-how, you know, like farmer know-how, but nobody really necessarily had done the science on it. And now it's like, oh, we can do the science on it, too, and kind of like put the pieces together. So, yeah, there'll be lots well, more what, of that. One reason on that, on that, in that vein, one thing we like about Bakashi is we're not bringing in truckloads of wood chips mm. to do it. Yeah. You know, aerobic composting takes so much so carbon. So much carbon. And a lot of farmers struggle with that. I don't hear, I got so much wood chip and leaf, I got no problem. But I know a lot of farmers really struggle 
with being able to bring in enough carbon for their nitrogen, because farms generally are producing enough greens for an aerobic compost pile, but not necessarily enough carbon for an aerobic compost pile. We're seeing, we don't have a problem here. Missouri is you know, pretty heavily forested, and yeah. there's some great tree trimmers <laughs> to work with. But in the upper Midwest, there are some plants that are now doing biofuel for you know, municipal reactors and wood chips are no longer free. They're going, wow. they're getting paid at the reactor for the wood chips. So tree trimmers now have an income stream from the thing that they used to give you for, for free. For free. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, if Bokashi's people are seeing the way it, to go oh, then. Bokashi's the way, right. You don't <laughs> yeah. have to worry about it. Well, and it, so it also basically, it sounds like, so we all, you know, this is the big, the big thing we're all talking about anymore is like, how do you get good compost and how can a small scale farmer really create enough compost, you know, when they don't have a tractor, particularly in, in our, in our industry right here and now with uh, small scale farmers that are doing flowers, not everybody has a tractor. Um, and it sounds like Bokashi is really easy because you don't need to turn it at all, right? I'm, I'm not making this up, am I? There's no, there's no turning. You <laughs> okay. pack it into the container. Okay. You push the air out. You seal it. You do nothing except drain liquid out okay. for the next three weeks. Okay. But it probably, to do it on a, a larger scale, you probably do still need, like, I don't know, like a a Kubota or a, a Gator or something, like some sort of um, ATV vehicle or something or a tractor to haul it. Because if you're doing it in large containers, how are you hauling that well, around? We, we can do, I mean, we have a very small utility trailer that connects to the back of a, you know, tracker LCV that holds nine, nine rollers, Oh, okay. you know, 96 gallon rollers, 300 plus pounds each. So you can hold easily a ton over a ton of Bokashi. Um, the, the challenge is, is burying it, right? If you're not going to bury it, then you do have to make a hot pile out of it. Okay. Uh, or you have to have a lot of chickens to eat it or, <laughs> <laughs> or something, right? And, you know, there's there's some there's some work to be done uh, in above ground Akashi finishing. Uh, we've been experimenting with adding layers of our farm soil and Akashi in either like a sling bag, you know, a woven mm -hmm. woven yeah. sling bag, yeah, or surplus barrels or just a wooden pen out of pallets. Okay, to see how quickly does it break down if it's lasagna between soil. Um, I know there's other farmers trying that too. It shows real promise. You have like your finishing bin where you bakashi right. it here, tip the roller into your finishing pen, add soil just as a layer on top and bottom, and then wait more time. I okay. can't tell you. It depends exactly on season. Exactly how and, long. Right. Okay. But it will eventually turn into undifferentiated soil. Right. Um, okay. So there's other options like that. But obviously, the classic is bury it or aerobically compost it. But so let me see. What's my next question? <laughs> so, okay. I'm sure somebody's going to ask. I think I know the answer, but I'm sure somebody in their head right now is going like, this sounds really gross. Um, <laughs> are, are there going to be uh, critters coming and digging this stuff up? Uh, is it going to lead to disease in your soil? Because, you know, we're, as farmers, we're told not to leave a lot of rotting material around in our planting beds. You know, let, let's talk about, you know, critters and diseases. What happens there? The critters... Well, no, I mean, I, uh, it's a sore subject to critters because the voles are, mm. yeah, voles are out in force. This I saw that on your Instagram the other day. I'm sorry. Uh, I, it's so uh... brutal. And I finally, you know, been, been, I thought, well, I let Elliot Coleman solve this. I'll get the tackle box traps now. There you go. It's like, they don't, they just dance around them from what I can tell. They're so, you know? they're so, so I, I think they're smart. I don't know. I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah, so yeah. That's, so no, I mean, 
we we Bakashi at home, right? So our backyard is is Bakashi Central. I've never seen anything dig up Bakashi mm. once it's fermented. It is very acidic and it's already fermented. And so it's not the most appealing food. Okay. Right? It's also you're putting it below, say, six inches of soil. So you're restricting okay. what would dig it up to a real burrowing animal. Mm-hmm. And then a burrowing animal that wants acidic, kind of yeasty, yeah. you know, fermented food. I, I'm not saying it won't happen, but we, you know, we've supplied you know, 500 plus houses with Bakashi systems. And I've, I've never had anybody tell me that small rodents are, are bothering the buried Bakashi. Okay. Whereas good. I would say almost every person with the backyard aerobic compost bin will tell you that raccoons. Oh, and, something's getting in know. it. Yeah, we yeah, we I had haven't. a we had a dust off with one of my neighbors recent. Well, last year where they like accused us of bringing rats to the backyard because we had a compost bin back there, and I had to <laughs> had to move my compost bin then. But yeah, I mean things come and find it when it's an aerobic pile. So that's why I'm thinking here's something that's not even breaking down. Well, it's not, you know, you're putting no carbon, basically. <laughs> you're just dumping nothing right. but food scraps into the ground. I was thinking something's going to dig that up, but it makes sense. But it's, it's only, let's say, a, a probably a week and a half window where it's fresh in the ground. Okay. And every day that goes by, there's less and less there. Okay, gotcha. Um, in terms of field production, of, so we grow flowers. We're not selling mm-hmm. vegetables at the market. Right. Uh, but my thought is... If you were preparing new beds, you would do what we did, which was trench, form beds, plant a cover crop, right? Something vigorous to suppress any weeds, mm-hmm. continue suppressing weeds and keep the soil in place. And by the time that you're mowing down or, or you know, terminating that crop, there's no visible food Anything waste in left. the soil anyway. Okay. It's all been digested. Okay. And then okay. You'd, you'd start growing at that point, And then there's, right? Yeah. But I will say that Bakashi... Because the acidity is so noteworthy, it's down to the mid threes on the pH scale. Oh wow! Yeah, so that that actually is an effective suppressant of like Salmonella, Listeria, E. coli, yeah. the common foodborne pathogen. So, yeah. um, it's of no more concern to me than it would be a mismanaged aerobic pile, mm-hmm. right? If, okay. Because if you're really not turning that regularly, you're not getting every every aspect of it to one. 40 plus Mm -hmm. for three days yeah you really have a a a real petri dish for foodborne pathogens right so um if people are doing on-farm aerobic composting there's a lot of due diligence to be done Mm -hmm. to ensure that they're not inadvertently spreading right i think i think gosh is on net less of a concern because it's shorter period and when you're planting, so that that answers the question about kind of like, you know, transmitting human disease. But when you're planting into a Bokashi bed, have you ever worried about fusarium or botrytis or something? You know, like, is that is there any more concern for, um, you know, pathogens, so to speak, in terms of, of our crops, do you think? We couldn't have more botrytis pressure than we do. So, <laughs> no, I, we, we really, I mean, Missouri, Central Missouri is is really fungal disease okay. central okay. and our our hope is that having more organic material in the soil and and uh, a lot of liberal dosing of worm, worm castings will actually suppress the botrytis and fusarium anyway. pressure okay okay i was just curious because i'm always it, even with compost i'm always worried about what you know if things are still decomposing out there if it's just a, a host site for 
you know, anything to come in that we don't want. But I now as I'm talking through it, I'm realizing that you're saying Bokashi is much more bacterial dominated, I think, right? Than fungal mostly. It is. It's uh, yes, it's lactobacillus, but yeah. bacteria first, okay. and then like kind of a finishing touch of yeast and okay. some fungus. Okay. So that that LAB in there is probably knocking the socks off of anything else yeah. that's trying to Again, get Yeah. Again, the acidity is so yeah. so right. strong. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> All right. So, you know, just oh, to ahead. touch on other risks, yeah. the reason we got into this was that we had bad, bad experiences with off-farm, not even off-farm, with persistent and semi-persistent herbicides mm. in our inputs, right? Regular in compost, yeah. Ho- horse manure and then other, yeah. other, you know, compost materials. So Ugh, that's the worst. It feels like I hear so many farmers that are losing the fight to, um, you know, just persistent herbicides in whatever, whatever they're using. So I guess if you're using uh, food waste, there's not going to be persistent herbicides or pesticides, hopefully no. in those. I mean, no. who knows what else mm. is in us, but <laughs> yeah, unlike, and even though I mean, we, we have a tree trimmer who's great, understands what we're doing and we only get, you know, true hardwood mm-hmm. chips from him. But if you're getting, from a municipal source where they're just chipping leaves yeah. who knows what who knows I mean, <laughs> eesh, it is know. it's kind of it's a kind of a little bit scary in that capacity so um but you were you that that leads me to my next question in terms of when you're saying why you got into this so how did you learn about this how you, you know i feel like you're definitely you sound very knowledgeable on bokashi at this point so were you self-taught did you are there ways people can train in the art of bokashi or what's that like we, maybe 15 years ago we were living in a, in a city and we did just don't generate enough food waste to have an aerobic pile mm, and mm-hmm. so you know aerobic pile needs about a cubic yard of material to get hot mm-hmm. and right this is this is kind of physics here you can't get yeah. around it by being really good at mixing it right. or something so <laughs> so we said this is really unfulfilling right we're never we're just you know our little kitchen counter scrap bin mm-hmm. um and i saw an article about pikachu and thought this mm. sounds great right and oh, wow. so <clears throat> bought a, a bin i don't remember who from anymore unfortunately i tried to find it last night and see if i had it still <laughs> and um I thought this is this is great, right? And we had a small garden in our backyard, and so we had, we could you know put in the garden, and soil seemed great, and that worked well for us for probably ten years. Oh wow! Um, I'd kind of I'd be at a bookstore and see some about Bakashi and kind of pick the book up and kind of just keep learning how it's working and keep doing it. And then uh, three and a half, four years ago, when we started this flower farm, we were really struggling with kind of quality fertility. Mm. We we obviously have pretty poor degraded soil, but we were so hesitant about commercial compost or or just non-commercial mm-hmm. inputs, mm-hmm. Be it wood chips or commercial or, uh, uh, municipal mulch or yeah. what have you. Ugh. We just we just couldn't do it. We were just so yeah. worried about it. Right. Um, yeah. And you know, in in this part of the country and, and probably in Pennsylvania, almost all uh, horse grazing lands sprayed with graze on, oh, which yeah. is yeah. Right. And yeah. So horse manure, which would have been our go-to to compost ourselves, was off. Um, and so, what are we going to do? Right. How, yeah. how can we do this? And we thought, well, we'll we'll just collect, you know, residential food waste, right. and we'll compost it ourselves. And we can look at the, we can talk to the trimmer and say, what is this wood? And <laughs> you know, right. And so we started doing that. We thought we'll just do a little bit and here and there. And, and then um, we were doing about twelve hundred pounds a week of food waste. How, composting it. How did you? How did uh, I just? 
Did you just ask your friends? Like, how do you do that? <laughs> what do you just Yeah, we like... started off asking friends. We started asking friends, what do you do with your food waste? Yeah. They said, oh, we, we throw it away. And we said, well, we're going to start collecting it for a nominal fee or a, okay. you know, a slight fee. And then they told their friends, and we went from like four or five initial people to you know, 140 customers and oh we, we had to stop we said we got to you know pump the brakes on this because right. we also want to be farming right we don't right. want to be yeah yeah we're not composters right but we want to have enough that we could you know sift and and cure enough to have um everything we needed for soil you know soil blocks yeah. and, and and for top dressing all the beds at least once was our goal okay and then we thought well why don't we do why don't we do bakashi in the chain here and so we went from making hot piles immediately to bakashing everything immediately and then diverting some to hot piles and then saving some for when we do new beds. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and then, we, and then we feed and then we feed the bakashi to our worms yeah. also. I want to hear about that too. Bikashi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but while let's stick on this idea of setting up a residential, I mean, this is essentially another part of your business is this residential yes, bokashi stuff. So. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, for those of us who, okay, full disclosure, I'm like, this sounds like a really good idea. <laughs> so I'm like, maybe I'll start that this year here at my farm. Because what I was thinking after I stumbled upon your Instagram, and then I was like, ooh, I want to I wanna talk all about this, is because we're already doing a door-to-door -door subscription service here with our flowers. So we're taking bouquets to people once a week. How cool, I feel like, would it be to pick up a bucket of their food waste when we drop off their bouquet, bring it back to the farm, and we're sort of like closing the loop in that way within our own community with our own customers. But then I, I get like anxiety of like, what am I starting if I do this? <laughs> Is this we like make any sense? Yeah. We, <laughs> so. we had the customers for composting, and then we started selling them CSA the subscriptions. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. cool. <laughs> Whichever way you get there. Yeah. But I have like 80 customers already that are getting flowers every week. Um, and I'm pretty sure none of them have a composting option. They might have compost bins in their backyard, but I'm in the middle of the city. So um, I could probably easily get, you know, a lot of food waste very quickly. But is there a huge learning curve to this? Is there a lot of cost to this? Is there, what are the things we need to know if we, if we decide to do this? I think you need to know what your what scale you're targeting. Mm -hmm. um, there's a sweet spot where every week you have enough compost to make a good decent pile that will mm -hmm. get hot reliably and is manageable for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be week, two week, whatever. I mean, think about Bakashi, if you Bakashi everything, you can save up two, three weeks of food waste and then make one pile at the end of it. Yeah. Because, you know, let's say it has to ferment for two weeks. If it ferments for four weeks, it's fine. It's, no big it's deal. Not like okay. It's, yeah, okay. it's great. Yeah. Okay. So you can say, well, we like making piles. We like making piles with six 96-gallon rollers. That's okay. kind of the sweet spot for us. Mm -hmm. So we save up until we have six rollers. Then we make one pile. Okay. And we wait another you know, two weeks right. for us. And then we do another pile and then we turn. So when we're turning, we kind of have this gap between them. So one is much farther along than the next one. Okay. You kind of, you know, it's a nice kind of sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we had 140 customers, that was too many, right? Okay. 100, 105 a week was perfect for us. Hmm. Okay. Right? Good to it's know. One, one day of pickup, very busy day of pickup. Mm -hmm. And then one day mixing a pile, washing buckets, whatever. And then, right. 
and then you're out there, you water the pile, whatever, but essentially two full days. 140, it tipped it into needing, it was just too much material for one pile every two weeks. Okay. Um, okay. And so you think, well, how much do I need? What, do I, what am I using this compost for? Right. Is it, do I want to have a great chemical free or, or, or known input stream for soil mix you're making, for worms you're feeding, for top dressing beds? What is it? Um, if you're trying to top dress your beds, you might need, you know, all the customers you yeah, can scramble Yeah, it's like up. a lot. <laughs> yeah. If your goal is to have a lot of composting worms for the vermicompost, mm -hmm. you may only need 30 customers, 20 okay. customers. Okay. okay. Um, and it's, yeah, it is, I, there's something very rewarding about having your own compost that you've made, you keep eyes on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's kind of like the special stuff you save for the really really good starch or something yeah it's the reserve it's the good whiskey in the back yeah 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 exactly <laughs> for just the nice people you like when they come visit so <laughs> but okay so for your for your customers who are in your pickup of food waste are they using a bokashi bucket at their house or are they just no, using a no. pail and you bring it all back right. and you do whatever exactly okay it's okay. using a pail pail with a tight fitting lid okay um, we chose pails with screw-on lids so mm. that they could have them outside and the animals couldn't open mm. them. Okay, that's they a good idea. They could gnaw on them and, and yeah. you know, right. do some damage to the lid. We can't right. open them. Uh, and, and we like that and they like that. Okay. And then we take it back. We we Bakashi here okay. and then give them back a clean bucket. Okay. How do you Bokashi on a larger scale than at your farm once you collect a bunch of things? Is it is there yeah, 96, another 96 gallon rollers? Oh, the rollers. Okay. Yeah. So you're Bokashiing mm -hmm. in the rollers themselves. Right. Okay. We you we drilled uh drilled one inch holes in the kind of the side bottom wall and oh, okay. then put in you know just commercial plumbing hardware. Okay. So there's a spigot, spigot on there that mm -hmm. okay, gotcha. Yeah. And then uh, tacked some hardware cloth across it so it wouldn't clog. Okay. And then you, you dump in food waste, sprinkle bran, repeat okay. till it's full, pack okay. it down, put the lid on, put a clamp on the lid so it doesn't blow open. Okay. Set it set it in the shade. Yeah. Every and let it when you go. walk by it, you hit the spigot and drain out some liquid. Okay. Uh, in the growing season, save the liquid. You can dilute it and use right. it as a soil drench. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah, I thought maybe you needed to have some... I didn't realize the 96 rollers were that you could modify them. That makes sense then. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great because, it, you know, even if it's a, even a 300 pound roller, you can move around. Yeah. You yeah. Know. You just got to get you, a little... you and a friend can put it into a trailer. <laughs> no big deal. Okay. You can move it into the shade, okay. you know, move around. It's okay. not, a, not a problem. Okay. All right. Um, and then, so you're taking this compost, I know, or the, the, the food waste, turning it either into hot compost piles or bokashi, and then you take the bokashi and you sometimes feed worms. Yes, correct? Yeah, and, yes, we do. And yeah. are you scaling up worm production because you now have the bokashi, or is the, what scale are you at? What, what advice do you have about on-farm worm farming? Because I think that's a huge yeah. question I also uh, have. <laughs> I tell you, as much as I love bokashi, I think worm castings are the most valuable yeah, amendment yeah. we have. Yeah. <laughs> 
they're just incredible. They um, really are. And you, you use a lot of worm casting. I do. Don't you? Yeah. I, I started a, a small, you know, it's called Cano Worms from, I don't know, Uncle Jim's yeah, Worm yeah. Farm or whatever. Yeah. And I've had that for maybe two, two years now. But I find myself constantly like, I'm working those worms so hard through the winter here right yeah, now. Yeah, I have yeah, them yeah, in a yeah, closet yeah. with a space heater. I'm like, come on, move in. Yeah. I need worm castings. So I'm like, I'm at the point. I got to, I got to scale up. And that's one of the reasons I was curious about Bokashi because I'm uh, the the limiting factor for me scaling up on worm production on I would like to have a much larger worm farm system like uh, I'm gonna do you know like yeah something large <laughs> but my my biggest problem is feedstock because I'm in the city and I don't really have a lot of access to you know dairy cow manure or whatever the other things that a lot of worm farmers would use and so but I do have access to a lot of food scraps but then it was like oh well I have to make these big hot piles and I'm gonna have to like you know pre-compost for a long time and then it's like wait Bokashi well, tell me more so that's kind of where I'm I'm yeah. leading towards I need more worms so maybe I need Bokashi. Yeah. You know, okay. So we started with, you know, indoor worm bin again, mm -hmm. like 15 years ago. And, and, um, this little happy colony of worms that survived early mistakes. Um, and so we scaled up initially, we, we got, uh, some used, um, plastic 35 gallon and 50 gallon barrels that okay. been used to ship, I think juice concentrate would have okay. been in them originally. Uh, <laughs> we just chopped the, they're, 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 they're the, standard plastic with a mm -hmm. one piece top just yeah. chop the top off with a sawzall and then cut like a little door in the oh. bottom side so you yeah. can reach in there and then drilled holes all the way around about a foot up and wove paracord through to make a like a spider web yeah if you're tracking yeah and then put paper on top of that put the worms in and then you put feed on top and so it's a very cheap these barrels are like 10 bucks wow so it's a very cheap diy flow reactor yeah you know you yeah. see and uh -huh. so yeah you flow can just through feed bed. up yeah okay and then, and then when you want castings you reach into the little door you cut and knock and up on the paracord yeah and it falls down you scoop it out huh. and then did you learn this on youtube area, where'd that come from yes, or did you just I make that, that up youtube no <laughs> okay. learn on youtube we've been i've been been looking for for homemade you know cfrs continuous mm -hmm. flow reactors yeah. which for everyone who's not a worm person Nerd. yet <laughs> it's where you have feedstock you put on top and the worms continually move up to eat the feedstock and then somehow you harvest castings from the bottom the bottom yep and that's typically with a breaker bar on a winch or something mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. this this is is really cheap yeah because the big. the the continuous flow bins that i was looking at are like thousands of dollars thousands, like thousands. thousands of dollars and yeah, i'm just like yeah. i don't know i was no. just gonna do concrete blocks on the ground honestly well, <laughs> yes fast forward oh good fast you forward. have some lessons to yeah. teach me <laughs> uh, so we we used we used those barrels and we you know and they're they're great right i mean you can put them on a dolly and move yeah. them around really easily too and they're yeah. not messy and stuff and they're cool um but when we scaled up again we said, well, we have this unheated barn. Mm -hmm. It's not being used. This part of it's not being used for anything. It's, a, it's an enclosed lean-to. So it's okay. a lean-to with sides, but no no insulation. Okay. We said, okay, well, we also are near uh, a cinder block manufacturer mm. where you can get a, just a pallet of blocks for a couple hundred bucks. Wow. You know, if you have a trailer that can hold, <laughs> you know, yeah. three, you can carry them. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we now have uh, a... It's four four feet wide. It's three full blocks wide. Okay. On the outside edge, outside edge. Okay. Um, and then thirty feet long. Oh wow! Okay. And so we started with 
we started with three blocks wide and four blocks long. Okay. And I and just we keep adding. In, we dumped in our, <laughs> you know, homemade barrel CFRs and we fed them. And then every couple of weeks we would add a block and add more food wow. and they would work their way down. And now we have, and it's, it's unheated, right? Okay. And this is Missouri. Yeah. So yeah. it's cold right now. It's going to be three degrees. Yeah. And I went out the other day, somebody had ordered worm castings. I typically like sift in bulk every once in a while and have okay. them when I was out. So when I said, I'll go sift. And there was solid ice on top of this, you know, worm bin. And yeah. they were fine. They were like, okay. Four inches down. They were, they're slow, right? Yeah, they're not yeah, really yeah. quick. Yeah. But yeah. they're absolutely alive. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, managing a worm bin on a farm, I, if I could have, I would have dug a trench okay. and put the blocks in the trench, right? Because if you get down, you know, a foot or 18 inches, it's not going to freeze. We're never going to oh, get Oh, just for insulation, frozen. for an insulating yeah, for purpose. Insulation. Okay, okay. And that would have kept them pretty happy all the way along. I did couldn't do that, right? This was mm -hmm. hard packed mm -hmm. and there was no way to do it. Okay, yeah. so I put blocks up. When we know that there's a really cold spell coming, we will put a thick layer of of working compost on top. Mm, okay. So compost that's still cooking. Typically when it's about 100, 110, you know, we don't yeah. want to put 160 on. Right. And then that gives them both more insulation, also some heat they can come up and get them through the cold snap. That said, even with no management, they still do okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do surely, we, we're, these, we're not managing our worms for productivity like you see on, you know, infomercials where it's a worm bin that's just a hundred percent worm mass mm -hmm. being fed, un, you know, totally undifferentiated right. dairy manure typically. Right. Yeah. We are feeding them Bakashi. <clears throat> so the quality of the food and the the availability is spotty depending on, right. Right. What it is. What it but, is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're lucky right now they're still eating pumpkins from Halloween. So, <laughs> and that is their number one favorite food. Really? Yeah. That's good if to you know. Want it, yeah. We do a free pumpkin pickup every Halloween. Wow. And so we'll get like a trailer. We'll just get thousands of pounds of pumpkins. And then you just put them in the corner of the barn. And then when you need to feed them, you, you just break toss. them open, put them cut side down. And then you lift up the you know, pumpkin or squash and it's just, you know, 10,000 worms what? eating the inside. Oh it's so cool. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, is your uh, trench, you know, trenching down a side, uh, we'll just go with what your system is right now. Yeah. Is it one concrete block high or did you put multiple it, up? It's three high. It's yeah, three, three high. high. Okay. It was, we started with one and then we, we want, we do want a pretty thick layer at the bottom that we're not getting into that often. Okay. And, you know, the thing about worm bin, the thing that kills worm bins is getting too dry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it really is getting too dry, honestly. Yeah. And so, so they gotta go. It's so somewhere. much easier to manage moisture if <laughs> yeah. you have a foot of material. Right. Versus yeah. and you know, worms too, they only eat at the you know this, I'm sure, but they only mm -hmm. eat at the very top layer. Mm -hmm. So if you put six inches of compost on, they won't they won't touch the top part until they get all the way through it. Right. So yeah. you really want to put a thin layer of food every time you eat, every time mm -hmm. you feed them. Mm -hmm. For us, we thought we're just gonna hold off on harvesting until we get a pretty deep layer here and okay. then what we do is we stop feeding let's say a four foot section and we go a month without feeding that section okay. so any worm eggs any cocoons will hatch and, move and they'll on. move out okay 
move down the bin and we say, okay, we haven't, we haven't fed this section for six weeks. We've kept watering it, whatever. Then we'll let it, that section dry out a little bit okay. and then harvest and screen it. Okay. And it's so much easier to screen castings when they're fairly dry. A little dry, yeah. yeah. And so a 30-foot bin, you can just say, okay, this section is the one we're not, we're not going to feed for a while. Right, right. And you don't have to worry about like a smaller, people that are managing smaller bins intensively, they're constantly like scooping out worms, yeah. moving them to their bin. I mean, there's a lot of like manual labor back there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah this sounds a lot easier. <laughs> Right. Yeah, dude, so much easier. Yeah. It, it gives me hope because I, when I've read, you know, I've read books, I've watched videos about the larger scale worm farms, and they all seem either a so mechanized, where it's just like, oh my gosh, I do not have a million dollars to buy fancy equipment, or b they're incredibly manual labor. Like there's just so much manual work to yeah. it, and I'm always like, wait, there's got to be an in between, and it sounds like you're you're doing it. The secret on those CFRs is somebody has to lift the feedstock above their shoulders yeah, into like, these. Yeah. It's yeah. the worst. It, it looks horrible. You think, <laughs> yeah. Or you're going you're to buy a skid steer to feed your right. CFR. Exactly. You, I guess you spend $4,000 on the reactor. You might as well spend 15 on a skid steer. I guess. But yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, this is nice. What we, we do is we um, will take a wheelbarrow Pikachu or a whole roller, depending on what we're doing. Okay. Now, now we're using a whole roller, wheel the roller in, kind of take a pitchfork, and now, granted, I mean, the, the Rikashi is fairly dry now because we've okay. been draining leachate out for right. weeks. Right. So it's much of the weight is gone. Okay. Because the water is the weight. Has come off. Right? Yeah. So now you're just kind of forking fairly light food waste out of this roller, kind of toss it onto the uh -huh. the worm bin, move down, keep doing it. You go, well, that looks pretty good. You know, I generally okay. covered the surface here. And then we get burlap bags from a coffee, coffee roaster, roaster? For, okay. for free. Okay. They, I mean, yeah, they want rid of them. Right. <laughs> and then we will water and then we'll put the bags on top to both uh, block light and hold humidity in. Okay. Then we water the bags again so they're already damp and we walk away. Wow. And you think in the summer when they're really eating, we feed maybe once a week. Okay. Maybe every two weeks. Okay. In the winter, they're not, I mean, they're eating, but not like not crazy. Like it. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of few weeks, you know. Yeah. And then we harvest and you just, we just, you know, I have dreams of building a, a really good trommel, right, mm -hmm. to sift out the castings. But until that happens, I built a really bad trommel that I didn't <laughs> that I use. So I'm until sure I it's good. Really good it's better than one that I would build. Let's put uh, it that way. It's so clunky, though. <laughs> and, and so unless I'm really in the sifting mode, I just have a eighth-inch hardware cloth mm, tacked to a wooden frame I made. It. Just kind of rub it through. and Okay. Yeah. And I can, you can harvest, you know, or make tote yeah. really quick. Yeah. You know, yeah. if there's yeah. a foot of castings, it takes no yeah. time at all. Do the, do the worms seem to finish eating what's at the beginning of the bed, so to speak? I always, when I've thought about this system, I'm always worried I'm going to end up with like a lot of, you know, I don't know. There'll, there'll be like a banana peel still in there and stuff that they just kind of walk away from it as they're moving along through the bin. And then I'd be left with a lot of gunk to sort through and manage. Not even I don't even know that I would necessarily you can tell me this is a bad idea. But in my brain, I just want 
all that good sort of biology that's in worm castings. I want um, the the texture of worm castings, and I want to spread it around my whole farm, like everywhere. But I don't need to sift it the way it would at going out to a consumer, so to speak. Like I plan on just like on farm use. So I was like, well, would they would they eat enough in this particular kind of system? I was basically thinking the cinder block system. Uh, Am I going to have this huge labor to getting the the castings to the point where I can use them in the field? No, because because so worm populations are dictated by the square footage of the top of the container. Mm. So when you add more length to that bin, the worm population will breed to meet the mm. square footage of the surface area. Okay. So by so let's say you add another three feet to your three foot bin, you double the size. Mm -hmm. It'll take a few weeks or more than a month for the population to catch up. But once it does, they'll all eat at the same rate okay. because the worms yeah, spread yeah. out to have the same population per square foot right, across right. the bin. Okay. Okay. So it, it should work out just fine then. To work out fine. Okay. And, and, you know, beyond letting the bin get too dry, the second big, big sin is overfeeding. Mm, and so that's my problem. You... Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, do yeah, that because yeah, yeah, I'm trying to get them to eat more. I'm like, come on. Yeah. That's my, I'm, pushing too hard <laughs> so if you just if you if you kind of restrict feeding until they've almost finished the previous food you won't see leftover things oh, okay. because they will eventually come around to the banana peel or right the, right you know unwanted onion right that got in there somehow and, okay yeah so another question about bokashi and worms in particular in bokashi you can put things like bones and meat into bokashi oh, yeah. and process it so, yeah. which is super crazy to me. I got to be honest. I, I'll do it, but it seems so not all right. It's but... great. Yeah, it's so great. <laughs> so, are you putting that in your bin too? And with your oh, worms? Yeah. You do. Sure, of course. Yeah, of course. Huh. They're great. They, yeah, they'll tear it through. I mean, they'll tear, they'll tear it through chicken yeah. on the bone or okay. steak. Right. Yeah, That's great. not a problem then. Okay. Yeah, well, worms too. I mean, worm, worms themselves aren't digesting anything they spit yeah. out the microbes that do right the microbes they microbes are happy to digest yeah that's true know, chicken skin or meat yeah. or whatever yeah. um and i always hope that the bones will give you know more phosphorus yeah yeah oh they should uh, i would i would assume that they would um okay and then was my oh uh do you have pests that get into that worm bin because that's the other thing i've been thinking like oh i'm gonna get like raccoons or you know because they want the worms not not the scraps but yeah. the you know worms never, are never super tasty okay. i have one winter i had mice get in okay that was really gross <clears throat> it was just because it surprised me you know yeah. um they did that they didn't come back after i evicted them okay um, <laughs> that's good yeah I did have a, a big black snake one time, Ooh. which probably was going after worms that or mice I didn't see. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of worm-specific pests, I have twice brought in mites from compost. Oh, yeah. When Interesting. I, when I before I was using bakashi, I was using unfinished compost, and twice I had huge mite infestations. Oh, they're gross and they yeah. disrupt the worms and. Oh. The solution is just do not feed. Don't feed for a long time. Just keep watering and okay. don't feed. Okay. And once all the food is gone, the mites will They'll die disappear off. too. Okay. And the worm cocoons will hatch and you'll be fine. And it'll be okay but, again. Okay. But it's really gross. And that's because the mites were in the compost and, yeah, you know. Gross. Now, <laughs> I suspect if I'd been more diligent about only pulling from the center of the pile that was at temperature, 
I wouldn't have had mites because obviously there aren't mites at 150 mm-hmm. degrees, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I was just pulling from the outside. These are unfinished piles that are still working. So I just pulled right. from the outer part of the pile that was okay. maybe 90, a hundred. Okay. It's probably great mite habitat and yeah. I dumped right in my yeah. bin. Yeah. Um, but other than that, no, um, in the summer, I try to be pretty good about layering burlap on top so that insects okay. don't find a ready home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it keeps them out. But yeah. It's okay. pretty, they're pretty mellow and worm wow. beds don't smell at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's nice. Wow. It sounds, you're, you're giving me hope. Cause I was like, uh, I think it's going to be so complicated, but it should just be this easy. And it sounds like it's, it's really been that easy. Don't overthink it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just eat, the worms, what worms want, they want you to feed them and then go away. <laughs> That's true. Like, They're like, please stop the light. Take the yeah, that light. Take that yeah, light away. That's all I care. And like, stop digging around and yeah, checking us out. Yeah, leave you me know? alone. Yeah, no, just, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you think um, just feeding bokashi is an option for a worm bin like that? For a worm well, that's what bed? We do. That's all yeah. you do then. Okay, because mm-hmm. that's and what there I'm was thinking. an adjustment. I will say that the first time we fed the bokashi, the worms did all duck away from that section of the bed because it's like, so acidic that's what i so was worried acidic. about okay yeah. and you you can find i could find almost nothing online about this okay right right pro or con and and so we said well let's just do it you know and we've see. got this pikachi let's see right. and after oh not quite a week the worms came back and started okay. eating and then after a couple months of solid pikachi diet there's no difference Right. I wonder if they somehow, because they can, uh, their generations are so rapid. I wonder if they had like some epigenetic adaptation that they, they're like, okay, cool. We're acidic worms now. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Or if the microbes in their stomachs did it, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe the microbes were able to neutralize the acid. I have no idea, but yeah. they certainly seem perfectly happy and okay. I'm happy without having to make big piles and right. Yeah. It, obviously, you know, the rubric compost, you end up losing half the mass through carbon cycling, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you're still adding a bunch of weight to it to make it break down. So then you're trying to haul, you're hauling food waste, which is heavy. Then you're hauling wood chips, which are heavy. <laughs> which are then heavy. you're hauling the two together to your worm bed. It's like, <laughs> oh, come on. You know? It's so much work. <laughs> <laughs> Bikashi, get in your roller, you just, you know, wheel the roller yeah, over yeah, and yeah. you think, yeah, pretty good. Not so bad. Yeah. Well, I have this vision for myself because I'm putting, I'm building this new greenhouse right now, which I had to like, you know, I, I talked about this on Instagram. Like I had to level the site and it's just devastating to me to look at the soil now because it's just like it's all subsoil i brought in like i had them save the topsoil they spread that back out but that didn't look like much topsoil at all and then i brought in some topsoil but it has really low organic matter anyway long story short i'm looking at this space now you know it's gonna be like a, a 35 by 70 some long greenhouse and it just looks like hell like it looks like dead zone (laughs) and I realized like I can't I can't grow in this thing this year like that I after all of this work I'm not going to have a place that I can plant crops into the ground I was planning on planting into the ground and I've just been around and around in my head how am I going to make this better fast you know I know it's all in nature's time and all that but this is this is tragic and I want to rebuild the soil as fast as possible so in my mind I'm curious what you think Matt because you seem very good at thinking these problems through (laughs) is I was going to build worm bins like yours as raised beds but um I'm not going to grow in them 
this season. There'll be worm beds for this season. But basically, all the beds that will eventually be planting beds will start as worm beds for a season or maybe even longer. And then I'm going to put... Um, uh, plywood over top of them and growing crates, grow flowers in crates. Um, I know that'll be a lot of work of moving the crates <laughs> back and forth and all of that, but I'm hopeful that that, and now that I have this idea of Bokashi, which thank you for that, that, you know, little nugget, um, the little breadcrumb to follow there. I feel like maybe it could go fairly quickly then. At first, I thought maybe it would take several years, and this is a terrible idea. But what do you think in your experience? What, what's going to happen to the worms when you're done with that? I know. I guess I'll just have to keep farming worms, but maybe I'll so take what, up outdoor what I worm farming. Probably do. This yeah. is big enough that you can drive in a like a mini, yeah. a mm -hmm. mini excavator. Yeah. Uh -huh. So the, the smallest excavator that John Deere and Bobcat make um, – is is pretty light and it's really small okay. maneuverable. Okay. I would probably, oh, I, I, would, I would obviously do this, Bakashi every bed. I would trench <laughs> right. the bed, okay. Bakashi it it back on. Okay. I would make a worm bed near your greenhouse and then just spread castings on top. Okay. You know, two okay. or three times and get a cover crop in there. Okay. But okay. I think you're right. I mean, I think if you could, you get on it, you have all summer and fall mm -hmm. and early winter where you're really able to grow in there. Right. Um, Oh yeah, you could be ready to grow next year. Next year, for sure. that's what I'm hoping. And yeah. it'd be great soil. Yeah, um, yeah. It'd be a great chance to make a, you know, how long is the greenhouse? Seventy-five feet. A seventy-five yeah. foot worm. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm like. Maybe I'll just make one down the middle of it, and then um, it'll be like planting beds on either side. But started with Bokashi, and then I was figuring I'm, at this point I'm probably gonna have to cover crop the house for like a, a season just to bring it all back together, basically. So, yeah. yeah. I saw. Uh, You've seen those climate batteries, the, mm -hmm. the yeah, the, right. I saw a, a greenhouse, a climate battery greenhouse, where they had done an in-ground worm bin. Oh, and they just put like a, you know, those those metal grates for you can walk on, like mm -hmm. you know, let let what like let water through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. covered it with one of those permeable metal grates, and they just lift them. They would just lift it off and oh. and drop in all the the foliage they cut when they were pruning. Yeah, and then toss the grate back on, so they could walk across the bin, right. Yeah. And the worms are just hanging out. They're just drop instead of cutting and dropping, you know, right in the beds, they're cutting and drop into the worm the worm wow. trench. So the three feet wide. The aisles essentially were subgrade worm bins, essentially. They had one. They had one that was, yeah. They had one. That, that was and oh. it was it was just they could when they watered, you know, they get some water in there yeah, because yeah, yeah. the and the bottom of that was clay and so they didn't even have a bottom. They just let the water just let hit the bin it. and go through. And then they could drop in all of their pruning waste. And yeah, I thought that was really cool. It's so fascinating. Oh, my gosh. I feel like my head's about to explode because now I'm like, oh, I got to add that. I got to figure that out. Because <laughs> I was thinking about doing a climate battery in, in the house, too. But um, I can't bring myself to dig around anymore. Those, the, I, yeah, that, it's been a little it's tragic like watching this thing. Feet or something. It's, <laughs> it's so crazy. It's so, it's know. nuts. They have to excavate so much. But I do think I'm going to look into some geothermal um, heating options, too. So, but anyway, that's a whole other subject. <laughs> so I'm glad no, to I hear it, it doesn't seem crazy. <laughs> no, I hate to tell you, we, we put up a 20 by 96 tunnel this summer and we put it up over the beds that we had bakashied oh yeah and so we didn't grade anything because we'd already put all the bakashi and we couldn't right. dare to do it right and so we just ordered it's on a hill right so yeah. we ordered ground poles that as we went down the hill the 
I could stay up. Taller. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and then we're working on this, and I thought, what are we doing? You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm so happy it's done now. Yeah. But right. it was, we just didn't want to disturb that soil. Yeah. Yeah. Now, granted, it was only 20 by 96, so it's not like a huge well, structure. I mean, well, but... that's that's a that's a uh, an intense project in and of itself. So, and it is so hard to build hoop houses on on a grade. You know, it sounds like you have a significant grade there, so that would that's always <laughs> tricky. But we we were helped by not knowing what we're doing. You know, yeah. yeah. So. Well, that's what I, I already have two houses here at my this will be far fancier and um, much more advanced than the two that I have. But after my first two hoop houses, I swore I'd never build another um, growing structure at my farm because it's just so hard. <laughs> and now I hear I'm doing it one more time. But this is really it. <laughs> Finally, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I know. You know yeah. how it goes. Um, so what I uh, time is valuable and I don't want to keep taking up your time but are there any things that you really want people to know about Bokashi that's sort of a misunderstanding and do you think most small-scale flower farmers should really look into adopting Bokashi in particular I don't think people know enough about it to have misunderstandings probably mm, yeah I think one is one misconception is that it must smell bad because it's just food waste mm-hmm. um but a well-managed Bakashi bin, which I mean is air, an airtight Bakashi bin with good a good um, set of microbes in there, doesn't smell more than uh, you know spoiled beer, or like a yeasty mm-hmm. bread. Um, so it's it's something that, unlike aerobic compost, it takes a lot of area. Mm. Right? You need space to have this pile, space to turn it, space to manage it. Bakashi, you can really stick any anywhere. Okay. If you think of a a large trash can as your kind of unit size there behind the barn in the shade is a perfectly good place mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's much more accessible than other methods of, of getting organic matter, matter in the soil. Um, that's a misconception. I think if people are expanding and adding beds, I think it makes perfect sense. Okay. And I, you know, there's so much food waste in America. You don't have to go door to door you know, food pantries, grocery stores, mm-hmm. they're constantly mm-hmm. calling and asking, oh, would you take 3,000 pounds of this or that? And it's like, oh, no, right? right. <laughs> you know? Maxed out here. So, yeah, I mean, just a little bit of foresight yeah. can get you as much food waste as you want for the beds you're expanding. And, yeah. and it's so cool um, to think about our flower farms as being able, you know, I know when I first started flower farming, I was so focused on flowers. It was like, I am a flower farmer. This is what I do. I love flowers. I am passionate about flowers. But I, I now over the years have realized that my farm is capable of so much more. You know, it's not just about growing flowers. Yeah. I mean, the thing that we sell the most of is flowers, but there's so many ways my farm can, um, contribute to the longer bigger picture you know so that generations to come will be a lot better off and it feels like flower farms being able to process food waste for our community is such an amazing service that we can do for our neighbors and then ultimately a service that we can do for our soil too so it it seems pretty no-brainer to me yeah and it's i mean thinking of people bringing in compost or soil mixes from the east coast mm-hmm. right from vermont mm-hmm. and, and you know to missouri seems crazy I, I understand there is a lot of labor i mean there's not a lot there's labor involved in doing this on farm but there's also locally available inputs that don't require long supply chains partly that's i think the right thing to do because of 
just the ethics of bringing things in from afar. Partly, I, I'm not confident that these supply chains will be reliable yeah. in the future. Oh, so just yeah. being in the habit of saying, <laughs> do we need, we need organic matter and fertility? Well, I have a local source that I do some light transformation to right. that makes the soil healthy enough to grow beautiful flowers or healthy vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. That is a much more appealing prospect for me than continuing to rely on somebody 1,500 miles away. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a wise perspective on it, too, because I think there are so many people now that are just going to, you know, they think they've got to buy the Fort Lee mix or whatever from Vermont Compost or whatever. Because, you know, the God bless Instagram leads us to many great things, but it also leads us to feeling like we have to use that product that everybody else is using because you see somebody else is using it. And um, but you're absolutely right. Like, how can we do this locally and for ourselves, for sure? Those, those products are great. I mean, yeah. they do. It's a, it's a fantastic product. But I tend to think if you have the capacity to do something locally, there are gains for you. I mean, mm -hmm. there's there's a gain in in money. I mean, it may be making some money off the composting business mm -hmm. versus spending the money. But there's also, you understand what it takes to do it. That's valuable. Mm -hmm. I think it changes my perspective on soil to see these inputs go in and see what happens. Certainly gets me away from chemical fertilizers. Yeah, so. all of it. All of that makes sense. A question that you, what you just said: How much do you charge people to pick up their food waste? What's the what's the sort $6 of economics? Of How much? Was yeah, that? although this it's six a pickup for us. There, okay. There's a, there this price ranges. I'd say we're on the lower end, uh, and then some companies around will do say eight dollars a pickup. Okay. Um, okay. And have you crunched numbers on? It, it makes sense for your farm to do this, like uh, from a, a dollars perspective like is it making you money at all or is it mostly just you want the food waste and you're making sure you're not losing money on the process oh it makes us money okay yeah it makes us money and it also is great income in the winter when there's nothing going on <laughs> <laughs> well this is true <laughs> it's a 12 month a year thing okay and so okay um we you know august here is pretty rough mm. Certainly we do continue to grow in August, but it's not a great mm -hmm. period. It's just mm -hmm. so hot. Everything's yeah. so stressed yeah. that we would like to do much less in late July and August and take that time to just focus on like starts for next year, really, yeah. or getting yeah. other projects done. Yeah. And so having a, a 12 month income stream is really nice. Right. You know, right. you know that, okay, well, Volzi, you know, a bunch of snaps, whatever. Well, okay. Still doing pickup this week. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime we can diversify as farmers and sort of hedge our bets, it's going to be better for us overall. Yeah. We also sell castings. We sell compost oh, and worms. Okay. I mean, it's, us, it's, you know, those are also, they're somewhat seasonal, but it's mm -hmm. also really nice. We have a lot of worms. Yeah. Yeah. People tend to want to buy, buy worms. So. <laughs> works out well. <laughs> so what you're saying is if listeners still haven't gotten a worm bin and they want worms and a worm bin, they can get them from you. Is that, is that true? Yeah, they certainly could, right? They certainly okay. could. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We do, we do ship, we ship nationwide on all the stuff okay. um, all right. and worms actually ship really well if it's not super hot out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thanks about worms. You know, they do grow pretty quickly. So yeah. <laughs> uh, a half pound or a pound of worms can become as many worms as you as you want as you'll need so yeah 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 and we we use a ton of castings but we use okay. i mean i wish i could tell you but as many as we can harvest mm -hmm. is toad after toad after mm -hmm. toad you know for we make worm casting tea we okay. put it in soil mix we put it 
just to run around the base yeah. of these plants yeah. when I transplant. Yeah. So, you know, it's worth it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, I, I could ask you a million questions, <laughs> but I'm going to I'm going to hold off for now. I might have to have you back again sometime <laughs> to ask more questions about it. So for now, I'm just going to say thank you, Matt, for incredible insight into all of this. Uh, I know listeners are going to be so happy to hear what you have to say. You're really good at presenting it. Um, and I'm really hopeful that this means there'll be a lot more bokashi and worm farming in our flower community. So thanks, Matt. <laughs> It's an absolute blast to talk about it with you. (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Well, that wraps up another energetic episode of No-Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil. (laughs) 